10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to another episode of Am I Allowed to Like Anything? I'm your host, Darian Simone Harvin, and this week, Mayuk's son joins me. I met Mayuk because I wanted him to be on my podcast, and Mayuk is a culture writer. He's contributed to Vice, Vulture, Pitchfork, and when we met, he was serving as editorial director for the site This.cm, which is a platform that lets users share one story per day, a story that they believe may be undershared or just believe that others should be reading. And now as I speak to Mayuk, he's joined Food52 as a staff writer. So we talk about his new gig and also a particular piece that he wrote for Vulture that I thought brought up some really crucial points about race in HBO's show The Night Of. So enjoy. Remember that you can rate and subscribe to Am I Allowed to Like Anything on iTunes, listen on Acast, and always join the conversation using the hashtag A-I-A-T-L-A. Okay, so Mayuk, I I always look back to when we first met. Yeah. I feel like we're in a relationship. Yeah, I feel I like I'm saying that like we're, we're in a relationship. <laughs> so I want people to know that we kind of became friends because I wanted you to be on my podcast. Yeah, like 80 years ago. Literally, yeah. that was, I mean, it was a while ago, but time, perfect. I mean, everything happens for a reason at the right time, right? <laughs> That's true. So when I originally reached out to you, you were at this.com. Dot .cm. Dot .cm. Oh, damn it. You were at this.cm. Everyone gets it wrong. It's totally chill. <laughs> but, um, and I wanted you to come on to talk about this because I appreciated the newsletter and I thought the product was really cool and I wanted to know more about it. And you are also an amazing writer, someone who's really been writing about the intersection of like race and pop culture, TV, soon you're going to be writing about food for mm-hmm. Food 52. So I think it's actually really cool that we're talking at this time when you are about to transition into a new position. Yeah, it's a weird like gestational period where I like for the first time in like one and a half years, I've just had like a month off, you know, and it's like between two different jobs in the same industry, you know? Yeah, so it's yeah. like, I'm kind of like gearing into like, you know, this new mindset that I need to be in for my staff writer job. So I know. it's oh exciting. My God. Staff writer. <laughs> I know the dream. Like, God, <laughs> I swear to God, like, you know, I think like a lot of people secretly want to be like staff writers, you know, but like they're stuck in editor positions or like other things that they don't really want. Um, Freelancers something yeah exactly right and like you know i realized like kind of throughout this whole process after like this shutdown that it's just so hard to like you know get like a staff writer job you know Mm -hmm. so i hope it is everything that i'm dreaming of yeah yeah so and i think the good thing in what i always try to remind myself is so rare is it's not that opportunity is rare but for some people opportunity is rare yeah and i think especially within media when you're still finding your voice and figuring out who you want to be and what you want to talk about and what you want to be an expert in in a lot of ways so that you can 
add context to what you do and what you write about. Um, but besides all that, I think the fact that you have had this month to like chill and decompress and then you get to go to like your new popping job. Yeah, exactly. And like <laughs> hopefully kick ass, you know? <laughs> right, right. No, for sure. And okay, so what have you been doing this month? Have you been relaxing? Have you been working? You know, like I kind of stepped into it like under the pretense that I'm like going to relax, but I realized that, you know, I'm very much like a type A person who, you know, just mm-hmm. like... If he's not working or, like, in front of his laptop in some sort of way, you know, he, like, feels like he shouldn't exist or something. So, like, basically what I've been actually doing instead of relaxing is kind of, like, you know, freelancing for as many places as I can, you know, kind of, like, devote to being in coffee shops all day, you know, Mm -hmm. as opposed to, like hang out with friends or doing something that, like, a normal person would do. Um, I, yeah, I've just kind of, like been really diligent about like you know pitching and like taking on assignments so i can like rack up my bylines while i still have the time to do that before i start this amazing staff writer position you Mm -hmm. know because i think there are so many publications that you know i have wanted to write for for a long time but i just didn't have the time or energy to do while i was still at this you know Mm -hmm. and so now i'm kind of like okay vulture i will write a piece for you as obscure i'm gonna do it you know so like it's and something we were talking about this of what I think is really unique about your new staff writer job at Food 52 is that that is really a site that's to me, you know, I first of all, I always open my food newsletters. <laughs> I always open my food newsletters. I'm always on my like eater, you know, Food 52. So that's uh-huh. a place I've always gone to for recipes, right? And for cooking and whatnot. And so you're almost going into this space to fill like the staff writer role to talk about food and culture and to kind of do something at an unconventional place. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, how do you feel? How were you feeling about that originally when you were approached about the position? And how do you feel about that now? Yeah, so when I was first approached about the position, I was kind of like week into a week into this whole like process of like figuring out what my next move was going to be, you know, and most of my conversations were for things that I honestly didn't want, you know, like I think a lot of people looked at this and were like, okay, it's a social media like networking site, so you probably should be slotted into like an audience development type role, but that's just like not what my sensibility is at all. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I haven't had Facebook for two years. Like, <laughs> I like don't know what Instagram is, right. you know, that kind of shit. And and so it's just, like, it's so interesting right. to see what people approach you about and what they assume about what your expertise is. Yeah. And sometimes it makes you want to like hit stub your foot. And then yeah. sometimes you're like, yes, you get it. Yes. You understand what I'm trying to do over here. Exactly. And so, um, Originally, my um, my boss to be, my editor Kenzie Wilbur at Food Fifty Two, um, just approached me and was like, "Hey, we're looking to fill this role that is going to be kind of like you know attacking food through the broader lens of culture, and we're looking for like, a culture writer as opposed to you know some like Martha Stewart or like yeah. Rachel Wright type person, <laughs> you know, um, who like got her food studies like degree at um, NYU or something, you, you know, a food studies degree." Apparently, yeah, there's something I learned like throughout the process wow. of like interviewing with them. Wow. Um, But yeah, and I was like, that's so interesting and not something that ever like crossed my mind, you know, but like what I was really gunning for was kind of a culture writer position that, you know, would allow me to just like regularly write about the things that I care about, you know, especially as they relate to identity and race and, you know, sexuality, all that kind of stuff. Um, And so, yeah, like she approached me about it and I was just like, this is like intriguing. Let me like suss this out. And mm-hmm. then like as I kept on talking, I just love the vibe. The offices were so beautiful. Yo, and I'm office like, vibes are so important. Yeah. Let's not play around. I know, seriously. And it's like, 
I think like what I was looking for after this, you know, which I loved, by the way, I mm-hmm. loved working for it. But I think I'm looking for a sense of, you know, stability and calm and something that's going to take care of my mental health and, you know, also like have me writing, which is what I want to be doing all day. Right, right. Um, so those two things were really important to me. And then, you know, a few weeks later, like when all the options were kind of on the table, it was mostly between like features editor type roles and, you know, the staff order position. And I was like... Food 52 is like a company that's growing a lot. If you told me like at the beginning of this process that I would be writing for a food publication, I'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about? But you know, like it just made so much sense for so many reasons and they want to expand so much and kind of broaden, you know, like basically what they're looking for in this role is to have kinds of stories that, you know, a normal person would want to read as opposed to like your typical like food media connoisseur, which is like usually a white person and usually, you know, like kind of rich in the upper crust, like 1%, you know? Yeah. And have they reviewed a bunch of restaurants and have like very distinct. (sighs) Yeah. Even when you read restaurant reviews, I often find them to be instead of critical, incredibly condescending. Yes. And... I don't know. I think there's something to be said about that. It's like we can joke about about food and about all these new restaurants specifically popping up in New York City. Mm-hmm. And as much as it, it is a landscape that I'm really interested in, like my grandmother owns a restaurant in Buffalo, New York. Oh, I so, didn't know that. Yeah. So um, she's owned a soul food restaurant for more than 50 years. And so Damn. food, I know, right? And That's she, crazy. I mean, she still works it, runs it to this day. How old is she now? She has like 70, I want to say 70 oh, something. Wow. Okay, that's not too old. It's not too old. I mean, but you know, it's like I'm trying to get her to retire so that I can like give her the best <laughs> everything one day on my media, yeah. on my journalist budget. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> but you, so I've always been around food. And I think even both of us from the cultures that we come from, food is such a big part of who we are. And it really ties us back to our our heritage and also what our parents value, right? Yeah, exactly. And so I keep, okay, so I keep on wanting to, I want to step back a little bit because I want to talk more about how you grew up Mm. and really how, if at all, that kind of shaped what you really want, what you write about in culture and how, you know, essentially here we are and you you decided that you want to write about culture and race and the intersection of that. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah. Yeah, so I grew up in New Jersey. Um, so, okay, uh, background. So I am mostly Indian, specifically Bengali, um, but then I'm a little bit white on my dad's side. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's, you know, colonialism. Yeah, um, but um, yeah, so like a lot of other like Indian immigrants, I um, or child of Indian immigrants, I grew up in suburban New Jersey. My parents had an arranged marriage. And they came here, like, in the 80s, which is kind of when a lot of, like, the biggest influx of Indian immigrants is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to school at Rutgers Preparatory High School, um, <laughs> which was, uh, God, yeah, it was a private school, which I'm a little embarrassed to say, because it's like, I'm so lucky to have gone to a private school, you know, um, but... Why so? In terms of, like, why I'm embarrassed. Or no, no, why are you embarrassed, <laughs> but why were you so lucky to go to that school, like... Oh, I think I was just lucky in general to kind of, like have an environment like a private school that you know my sister so okay i have a sister who's nine years older than me and she grew up in a very different kind of like time and in a different new jersey even i'd say you Mm -hmm. know and she went to public school where you know like as kind of one of the few indians in her class and everything she got made fun of constantly you know and she constantly felt you know like her self-confidence was battered a lot by Mm -hmm. you know just like schoolyard bullying and shit like that you know 
I I still got bullied in private school, but like still, like you know, it, it wasn't, wasn't as the, bad. Yeah, no. yeah. So it was more of you were in you were at least in a space where you felt like you could learn. Yeah, exactly. And make friends and and like flourish and like you know right. also have like you know certain educators and teachers who like believed in me and stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was really lucky by you know the end of school, like I. I had like you know a few teachers whom I really respected and valued and felt like they understood me and what my talents were mm-hmm. and I think that's so important. It's really not what my sister got you know in public school. So I kind of like looked at her you know being nine years older than me and was like, wow, I'm very lucky in that regard. Yeah, um, it's so I have a younger brother and you just you number one have a different perspective of your parents mm-hmm. and oh my god yeah yep <laughs> and of who they are right and yeah. it was actually something i talk about with angela with author angela florinor oh. of the turner house she's, she's like great. Yeah. yeah she's amazing she was like you know the perspective i have about my parents and my opinion of my parents is quite different than my younger sisters yep. <laughs> and i haven't really talked about that with my brother yet but i but i should how old is your brother now he my brother's 21 okay so not that much and, younger yeah, yeah. He's not that much younger we're like obviously four years apart so okay so you grew up in new jersey you really feel like you had good opportunities to to learn to to flourish to be around people who supported you in ways yeah definitely and Um, i'm sorry go ahead no no go i was gonna i'm interested i was gonna ask how i think back then how important was your indian identity (sighs) that is a good question i don't think that it really like Okay, so like I said, there was kind of just this surfeit of like Indian Indian people like in this part of New Jersey, you know. So as a result, I didn't feel like, you know, the only one or like the odd one out, you right. know. Um, but I certainly felt like I think from middle school is when I first started to feel very insecure about like being Indian and have this like pang of like wishing I were white, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, like I had this one like she was this terrible best friend in sixth grade who like i rode the bus with every day and she was always like i think all indian people are like so ugly sorry you know like and she would always just like you know all like those classic like garden variety stereotypes about indians you know that like we're ugly that we like smell like shit you know all those (laughs) kind of stuff that were just like really dirty and everything she just like you know spewed out constantly and i internalized that so hard you know Um, and so I think that like kind of in middle school is when I started being kind of like cognizant of the fact that like I had this insecurity that I have to like ride out for the next few years, you know, and like mm-hmm. come to terms with the fact that like I shouldn't be ashamed of being Indian and everything mm-hmm. like that, you know. Um, yeah, so that was like kind of, I don't know, it played like a bigger part than I think I realized at the time, you know, how I shaped myself and how I like kind of grew to become confident. I think that from the conversations that I've had with people of color, even on the show, they've always had some sort of instance that has reminded them of that they were different in their environment or that they were a person of color. So it's kind of isolating. What I sometimes feel like we do is we isolate that situation and it plays such a huge part of who we are for however long we allow it to. But then it also helps to push us to be this more confident person where we realize that we deserve everything that our, that our white peers deserve, right? Yeah, definitely. We, so I, I don't know. I, I think it's always something where, and then also for figuring out how race plays a role in who you are in the world. And mm-hmm. I sometimes think that writing is 
his our writers are often figuring that out. Writers of color are often figuring that yes. out through their writing. Yeah, they definitely are. So you were reading a lot, obviously, and you knew that you always wanted to be a writer. Yeah, definitely. And I specifically, like, you know, was thinking, you know, I want to be a journalist. So I did that all the shit that everyone else does, like in high school, where they're editors in chief of their high school mm-hmm. paper, and you know, like they start writing for it in like ninth grade and everything. Um, yeah, but then I kind of entered college and. I started to realize that, you know, journalism is very white and it's not easily permeable for someone like me, or at least that's like kind of what I told myself. So I, you know, I kind of like abandoned, I guess, those aspirations a bit during college, you know, like I didn't really write for my college paper a ton, you know, and so it's kind of like, I kind of came back to these original aspirations when... I hit my senior year of college, you know, and I was trying to figure out what I'm going to do next, you yeah. know. Um, but sorry, I did not answer your question, which no, is no, like, okay. what? I mean, but you kind of did, though. So you realized you really wanted to be a journalist, and you, as we all do at, at some point, realize how incredibly white it is. And then you have to make some choices. You have to right. figure out, is this something, are you going to be able to deal with the microaggressions or the blatant racism? And then at what cost, right? Right. So... You decided to do what? <sighs> During my senior year of college, I... Okay, well, first of all, I will say, like, I was at Stanford, which is a very, very tech-oriented school and very, you know, like, it's, I saw a lot of my classmates that year, you know, kind of be like, oh, I'm going to work at Palantir, or like, you mm-hmm. know, they're either going to do like that, like, very aggressively Silicon Valley type stuff, or they're going to do Bain, or, you know, some form of consulting, or like banking and everything like that, and I was just like, okay, I want to A, feel different, and set, like, myself apart from, like, my peers, you know, mm-hmm. um, and so what I did my senior year, actually, was I just, like, figured out all these, like, you know, different journalism fellowships that exist in the industry, mm-hmm. you know, like, the American Prospect has one, um, the Atlantic has one, etc., um, and I just, like, made a list of them, and I just applied to all of them, and, you know, most of my internship experience to that point had kind of been, like, all over the place, you know, like, I was very diligent about, like, having an internship each summer and everything, but, like, mm-hmm. one was in arts journalism, another was in, like, arts management, which is, like, not what I want to do at <laughs> all, and I realized that that summer, um, and another one was at, like, an NGO for journalism, which was kind of, like, you know, vaguely, like, you know, there was some vague connective tissue to, like, the journalism world, but not really. Um, but anyway, so I applied to all of these things and none of them really worked out, you know, because I just like didn't have the experience, you know, it's not like I was writing for the Stanford Daily or anything like that, you know, but I realized that I was just kind of like, okay, I want to be writing. This is kind of like the entry level step into that whole thing. Um, so I should just like go for it. But anyway, I was a finalist for the Atlantic, um, media fellowship and through that, um, they day i don't know like the hiring managers or something like um found my resume and connected me to andrew golis um my now former boss um over at this and that was like back in 2014 and um he and i just got on a phone call like you know june of my senior year and he was just like hey i'm starting this thing and we were looking for like a community editor type person like would you be interested like blah blah blah. and i'm Mm -hmm. like uh yeah that sounds interesting cool like you know um But yeah, anyway, like, the project didn't even, like, take off until, you know, um, November of that year, you know, and... uh, So was your position at this your first job out of school? 
No. Here's the thing. So right after I graduated, I had an internship over in Boston um, for a summer. And then after that, I moved to New York with the intention of, you know, getting this cinema studies degree Mm. but I told myself like okay I'm gonna like get a job during the day that is gonna allow me to pay for this myself and live in New York (laughs) haha pipe dream obviously like you think you can but then you're like tired oh my god and also like eating at Shake Shack every day yeah (laughs) spending too much money on Ubers and yeah yeah it was awful um and so basically I landed a job at an awful nonprofit that I will not even name. Um, it was a damn mess. So anyway, um, anyways, you meet Andrew. Yeah, exactly. So I like get back in touch with Andrew, like you know, January of 2015. I'm like, hey, like, are you still like hiring? I saw that this like you know launched in beta a few months ago, and he's like, yeah, let's talk totally. And then we just go through a few rounds of interviews, you know. And at that point, this is still part of the Atlantic. Um, then he just like kind of tells me like hey we'd love to have you come on and everything right um, and around the same time i also um in january 2015 i had a friend from college who became an editor at vice and um she's great and um she basically kind of commissioned me to like start writing pieces for her so it was kind of like those two processes were like in parallel where like you know i started like freelancing right. and kind of like having bylines under my name yeah. and stuff so you things know. were starting to pick up yeah exactly after like a very very like you know <laughs> ruling spell of just like awful shit happening right. um so before we go any longer i want to talk about what this is yes and so this is how i describe it to people mm-hmm. and then you can you know Tell me what you think, or totally. we can fill out some. This.cm <laughs> is a platform, is a website. Was. Was a website. <laughs> so it was a website where you could go as a user, and every day you're allowed to post one article that you read that you thought everyone else should read, right. or that you thought was maybe undershared, or if there's one thing you're going to read for this, for this day, or out of all the things that I've read today, this is the one piece that really stuck with me. Yeah. And so uh, you could friend people on this. You could um, see what other people were sharing and you could read their thoughts on it. But I think to me, kind of the standout product for it was the newsletter, which you edited. Right. right. And so the newsletter was really great because it came in the evening every day. And it was um, really just a selection of what this users had posted that day, a variety from different corners of the web. Mm-hmm. And so, and under each of them was some bit of commentary about why it was so great. Right. And so I, I missed that newsletter. Yeah, I miss writing it too, you know. I mean, I think it was great to, you know, have a really big chunk of my job be to, like, read the internet quote-unquote all day because Mm -hmm. like you know for all the dumb shit that comes out every day there is so much good stuff that is just not like being rewarded by our current social streams and networks you know like Mm -hmm. twitter just stuff gets lost you know facebook in my memory of it at least is just not conducive to that kind of stuff you know um for you what did you think the appeal for this was for the users i think well, there are two things, basically. I mean, when you come to the site, you know, like, I think we had a lot of people tell us that they can come to the site and dependably find, like, at least one good thing to read that they had not seen anywhere else on the web. And that was great, you know, mm-hmm. um, to, like, kind of have a satisfactory experience. Um, and then in terms of the newsletter, kind of, I think it served different purposes for different readers. I think the thing that I heard most was that, you know, it was a very like compact summary of what you needed to know every day you Mm -hmm. know um 
not just in like New York media, but like in general, like kind of like right. what I hate to describe it, like what the cool kids are reading, quote unquote, you know, but I think that's like, oh, that was one of the ethos behind it, you know? Yeah. And so I think those are the two big uh, parts of appeal, you know, it's kind of like feeling as though you're in the know with, you know, people who like took journalism and media seriously. I don't know. Right. I didn't want to read my, some like... My impression was, at least for me, it was a lot of people in media right. were... To me, that was not not the only audience, but attracted a lot of people within that audience, including myself, because you wanted to see what other people were writing and because you were always so inundated with with pieces and information and whatever was published that day, this was something you could go to and say, okay, I know that this is what I missed, this is what I saw. Right. And, it, and it almost served as a barometer for right. content that day, I yeah. would say in a lot of ways. I'm glad it did. At least for me it did. That's and good. I think it did it in a smart way because it wasn't just any type of topic. It wasn't always one specific kind of website mm-hmm. um, or uh, one specific kind of writer. And so, right. you know, the articles didn't have to have a theme. They didn't have to all relate yeah. um, because life doesn't, I don't know, that's, that's not how life works, right? right? Yeah, like totally. life doesn't always relate on every corner and in, in every home or office. Yeah, definitely. So why do you think that this had to close? Like what was... I think that in general, it's very difficult for people to incorporate something new and fresh even if like you know they agree with the ethos behind it and find it appealing or whatever it's very difficult for them to integrate something new into their you know current existing diet of like social media and their existing habits you know yeah and as a result we just you know it was very hard for people to keep on using the actual site you know what we usually heard from people with that oh i love the newsletter it's so convenient and you know that's great you know mm-hmm. but like unfortunately having like a an not even active like a loyal readership for a newsletter does not you know create a i hate the word scalable but you know, like a scalable yeah. product quote unquote even a sustainable one you know right. so as a result it was just kind of like classic startup story of like you know we ran out of money we ran out of time and also a crucial part of this, and I'm so grateful that I had a boss like Andrew to be attuned to this, but we were a team of three people. It was just like me as editorial director, Andrew as a CEO, and um, this guy Zeb as our engineer. And it's just like between three people for us to be doing so many things and wearing so many hats as you do in any startup, it just exhausted all of us, you know, and we were like not even taking care of ourselves, you know? Yeah. And so Andrew kind of saw this, that, you know, the combination of money and time and also our personal exhaustion and like mental health, it was just like not conducive to like, you know, string this product out even more. Right. I think there's something to be said about during this time where newsletters are a big thing right now totally if you have a site you have a newsletter and you might have a few different kinds of newsletters mm-hmm. and i was actually reading something and i'll have to put the link in the bio to specifically where i read it but it was like how news editors are some of the most important people in the newsroom right yeah, yeah. but still that has to come with i guess some type of larger product mm-hmm. that is bringing in revenue and is bringing in right and is bringing in that huge audience yeah, so exactly I yeah see.
So now you're about to head into Food 52. Mm-hmm. By the time this comes out, you're going to be a writer of Food 52. Yeah. But um, you have also been freelance writing, as you said, during this time. And mm-hmm. I actually wanted to talk about one of your pieces that I absolutely loved about HBO's The Night Of. Thank you. <laughs> and I wanted to talk to you more about like the writing process for that and how you kind of came to why you felt like it really needed to be discussed, how they touch on like race and criminal justice. Mm -hmm. Totally. Well, I think in general, you know, as like a South Asian male, you know, I'm really interested in kind of like representation of South Asians in popular culture, you know. Mm -hmm. And over the past year, we've seen some really interesting things happen with Mindy Kaling, obviously, Aziz, obviously, but also like Priyanka Chopra, you know, all these people. Oh my God, I love Priyanka Chopra. I do too. And I did not like her at all in Bollywood, but I saw Quantico and I think Quantico sucks, but I think she's fantastic. In <laughs> I it. think she's fantastic. She's so charismatic. I interviewed her manager, <gasps> le- whose name I should know. <laughs> Let me look it up. And, uh, I forget her manager's name. Oh, Jesus. <sighs> Anyways, I've interviewed her manager for HerAgenda.com and Wonderful Lady. But anyways, continue. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, um, so it's really interesting that after kind of just this, like, paucity of representation of South Asians on TV, we're seeing not a lot, but, like, a lot more than we had before, you know? And then I was kind of parsing, like, okay, but what are these images, you know, like they're all loaded images you know and like what are we actually seeing here like you know all representation not good representation or anything like that you know like for example i think quantico it's kind of weird and hasn't really been sussed out yet the fact that like you're literally taking this south asian woman and thrusting her in this role where she is accused of terrorism you know like what does that mean in this you know like post 9 11 moment you know i feel like that hasn't necessarily been parsed yet especially because like her character has like this white ass name like Alex Parrish, you know, that's, like, <laughs> aggressively, like, not threatening, quote-unquote. Um, anyway, so The Night Of, you know, it features, like, a Pakistani, like, character who's played by Riz Ahmed, who's an amazing actor. And I kind of, like, looked at the narrative r- blueprint of that whole show and was like, okay, this is really interesting. It's taking this kind of latent, sometimes explicit Islamophobia and fear of this brown male body, quote-unquote, and when I say brown, I mean, like, South Asian or Middle Eastern, not, like, you know, South Asian, Middle Eastern, or black. Because mm-hmm. I think a lot of people misuse the word brown. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, and I was kind of looking at that show and being like, okay, so what kinds of images are we seeing here? And as I saw the show, like, I kept on watching the show, I realized that it was kind of trafficking on pitting, you know, this Pakistani, like, protagonist against black men and black men in general were conceived in this show in this very monochromatic way that, you know, spoke to me, at least from my remove, as, like, totally anti-black, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought it was especially just interesting to, you know, cast this, like, South Asian man against black men and everything. And, you know, like, over the course of the series, as I write in this piece, Nas, who is basically accused of this murder that we, you know, in- initially don't think that he committed, you know, he becomes, like, more and more evil-seeming, and that happens as he's on Rikers, and he adopts, like, the traits of these, you know, black men who the show casts as kind of, like, these evil, terrible, like, you know, nefarious people, you right. know? I mean, in general, I think that I've been thinking a lot about anti-blackness in South Asian communities um, over the past year and i'm not really sure why i think um this changed a lot when um i read this really amazing piece um by my friend fanta sila um i don't know if you know her 
Everyone should know her. She's amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, But she wrote this great essay on her blog last year that ruffled a lot of feathers. um, And it was called, I think, Black Women versus Women of Color. And it was basically sussing out how online there's this community of, you know, South Asian writers who use the word like brown and they mean it as kind of like a catch-all term that, you know, sweeps in the experiences of like Black womanhood with, you know, South Asian womanhood, you know, in a way that, you know, amounts to erasure, really, because it's like, I think a lot of, you know, I'm speaking as a South Asian, I think there are a lot of South Asians who, you know, would like to believe that after 9-11, our experiences, you know, mirror the kinds of, you know, oppression that, you know, Black Americans have faced for centuries when obviously that's not true. And there are so many differences. And I think that there's a lot of danger in, you know, drawing those parallels under this pretense of solidarity, you know? Yeah. And so I saw some kind of mutation of that in the night of, you know, and I really wanted to start exploring that. You wanted to start exploring that. Exactly. And do you think that you will kind of continue to do that? Because... Yes, definitely. Um, I, I'm not sure like how many you know like South Asian writers have been tackling this kind of you know this topic in general, but it feels to me very urgent. You know, when you have people like MIA, for example, being like, she said so much fucked up shit yeah, about she, Black Lives about Matter. Black Lives Matter, and how like we all should be fighting for this. Or yeah, this exactly. Include, she basically said this should include brown people. Yeah, and it's just like. I don't even know where to begin with, like, you know, her extremely tone-deaf comments, but it's kind of, like, erasing black Muslims, for example, from this whole, like, existence at all, you know? It's just, like, we have a lot of puzzling comments from people like that, and I'm trying to think of, like, other, like, big examples that have been really glaring to me. Oh, like, the curry scented bitch stuff, actually, was really, like, disconcerting to me. So, like, after Azalea like, said this stuff to Zane on social media that, mm-hmm. like, you know, prompted this hashtag for a bunch of, like, South Asians. And honestly, like... Wait, know... so Azalea Banks said something... Not Azalea... Oh, Wait. Did you... Oh, did you not know this? I don't know if I remember this. Oh, my God. Okay, so recap. Sometimes, like, pe- stuff will go over my head even when I think <laughs> I'm the most woke, informed person. Well, you, you get up early every day. I don't know. Like, yeah. you have a different schedule than the rest of us. <laughs> but I would say... um yeah, so what happened was, like, a few months ago, Azalea Banks, like, you know, um, just said some really, like, you know, admittedly, like, awful stuff to Zane, and was mm-hmm. just like, oh, I you're a curry Senate bitch, blah, blah, all that kind of stuff. And a curry Senate bitch? Yeah, exactly. What is that? And, <laughs> I don't know, but it's oh, like... Oh, like it's like some slang term she came up with. Right, like, exactly. Offensive. Okay, got yeah, it. Yeah, towards his South Asian identity, and... Um, after that, you know, this kind of precipitated her being banned from Twitter, which is very odd considering, like, you know, who is banned from Twitter, who isn't. It's very right. weird. Um, you know, but anyway, after that happened, you know, like, Zane's fans, along with, you know, this contingent of extremely corny South Asian Twitter users, basically, like, came up with this hashtag and, like, turned it on its head, and they were just like... Hashtag curry scented bitch and like, you know, they posted these like selfies of themselves and you know, a lot of these people were like, you know, light skinned Indians, which obviously like, you know, colorism is a very big issue, like, you know, within the South Asian and Indian community, you know. Mm-hmm. And obviously it's particulars are very different from colorism in black communities, you know. Right. Um, but and I don't think those two things should be conflated. But either way, it was just kind of like to me, it amounted to kind of like a pylon of black woman who in general has been like vilified a lot in the media for like the things that she said and like her perceived transgressions in, you know, a way that, you know, 
non-black people are not, you know, held to that standard, you know? Um, and so what I saw with that curry sandwich thing was just kind of like a bunch of, you know, South Asian, like people with visibility basically being like, oh, this is like a lot of fun to pile on this black woman, you know? So like, let's just do it, you know, yeah. under the pretense of being proud of our heritage and stuff. And right. it was just very like transparently anti-black to me, you yeah. know? Do you think that she deserved to be critiqued in some way for her comments, but in a different way? Or it was really just the way that they kind of attacked it from this lens that felt anti-black as opposed to a lens of, well, what you said was was offensive and like someone should really hold you to the fire for specifically saying what you said. But instead, they really decided to like use her race as a vehicle to offend her. Yeah, she should have been criticized for them, but not with the kind of vehemence that we were seeing, you know, especially coupled with kind of like, you know, her banned from Twitter, which was just like crazy to me, considering who isn't banned from Twitter these right. days and who is, you know? Um, yeah, so that was those, that was my read on the whole situation, gotcha. you know? Um, but anyway, I've been really interested in kind of like, you know, after reading like Fanta's essay and everything like that and kind of viewing a lot of like what is written online by South Asians through that lens of kind of like, okay, how much are we speaking over black voices, you know? And like, how often do we like stop and think like, okay, would this piece be enriched if I were not the person, like, you know, saying this kind of stuff, you know? And I think that's, like, and it's a hard question to ask sometimes when, you know, like, the freelance economy in general does not necessarily reward that kind of, like, saying no to yourself and everything because, like, a lot of people are just, like, desperate for cash and they just, like, want to write as much as they can, you know, and, like, Mm -hmm. get bylines and shit like that. And they're going to, like, you know, write stuff that they probably shouldn't be writing. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so as I told you, the one question I'm asking everyone across the board, how has the election affected you so far? I don't even know how to begin um, like answering this. I mean, I in general, like, I wouldn't say I was explicitly apolitical, you know, um, before this, but I was certainly never one to get like incensed about politics, you know, but I think that Trump's rise obviously is you know I've just I kind of have been like stepping back and just like watching kind of like you know so the people I see mostly like you know in my day-to-day life you know and saw my work life for example while I was at this was just like white liberal New Yorkers you know who like are pride themselves on being lefty and everything like that and I think like over the past few months I saw I kind of like watched them and their mentalities like shift as Trump became the nominee and everything like that and it was so interesting to contrast kind of like you know their attitude towards like his ascendancy with like the attitudes of people of color who were like no let's take this shit seriously let's like you know he presents an actual threat you know to our like you know our personhood you know right and i think that in general what i have noticed like throughout this whole process um of the election is just the way in which a lot of people you know like a lot of white liberals they don't feel as though they have too much to lose like you know with a trump presidency you know it would at best be seen as kind of like a nuisance a a disagreeable like you know outcome but like but but what's really at stake for you right yeah exactly something i i often think about is i do feel like there are some journalists who most certainly veer liberal or who you can tell do not 
consider themselves to be conservatives or a part of the GOP party. Mm-hmm. Um, this has been an opportunity for them to critique a man who's who's a bigot and to make themselves look and seem incredibly smart because they understand how to analyze a bigot. Mm-hmm. And some people, I think, have even made stronger careers off of analyzing Donald Trump now, right? Yeah. And definitely. so I always think about like what like what is what is really at stake, right? So when we have white journalists who are covering politics because it's their beat, they've also been able to benefit from critiquing or analyzing a man who's clearly flawed anyways Mm -hmm. on these platforms where people pay lots of attention to them and to their ideas and their voices. So I don't know. I just, I wonder how much, how much are we just going to talk to talk about this man? Because you have an idea of of who he is and you have a, you think you have a really smart take on who he is. Right. And do we always need that take? Because what's really at stake and for whom? Yeah, exactly. So, and I think like, you know, over the past few months, you know, especially like at a job where I was just like reading constantly, you know, I kind of became very numb to this whole uh, genre of piece that was either like, I went to a Trump rally or mm-hmm. like, I talked to, you know, like poor whites who like, you know, live in a trailer park about why they love Trump and stuff like that, you know, and just mm-hmm. this kind of like... I've seen the weird way in which, like, New York liberal media has tried to reckon with, you know, the possibility of his presidency, you know, and it's just, like, really odd to me and fascinating in a way that I haven't been able to digest yet. And in the same way, it's also kind of like seeing the lack of stringent critique of, you know, his opponent, Hillary, you know, is also kind of odd to me, you know, like, I saw some people tweeting yesterday about like, oh, well, you know, you should look at what happened, like, you know, how much the Clinton Foundation has done before you think that it should be shut down. And I'm just like, well, have you seen what happened in Haiti? Like, you know, this is not like some hunky dory, like, you know, like, great institution that they founded, you know. Um, So I think it just goes both ways, you know. There's just kind of, like, lack of self-criticism or, you know, lack of kind of foresight into, like, what needs to, you know, what we're stepping into, really, and what we're enabling through our kind of mealy-mouthed or, like, soft coverage, you know. Yeah. I I want to know, just through a lot of your reading when you were at this, was there anyone who you felt was uh, covering Trump? well or holding it not even just holding them to to the fire and but but really putting a lens with context on who he is or even if it was one piece that you felt like okay we don't need any more pieces on this right i would say the definitive trump piece was you know this is kind of like the cliche answer but um patricia lockwood's piece in new republic um where she went to a trump rally first of all it was fantastic to have you know someone who is not a white man like you know Mm -hmm. visit a trump rally he's like a lot of people love the george saunders piece in the new yorker where he went to a trump rally as well you know but i thought that like patricia lockwood's like um visit was entertainingly written while at the same time having kind of like you know gravity in Mm -hmm. terms of like what this would mean for a lot of people Mm -hmm. and it also inched toward an understanding of who his supporters are and everything like that without necessarily you know making them one one type of person yes exactly yeah um so i would say that was probably a definitive one but that's just the first thing that comes to mind you know like I, i generally try to avoid like you know a lot of like you know uh, explainer type pieces of Trump and everything, you mm-hmm. know. Okay, so 
Next segment, you know, I have every episode, mm-hmm. the plus one segment. Yeah. Do you have one ready? No, I don't. No, you're looking at me like, girl, I'm ready. I'm ready for nope. this. <laughs> um, so for anyone who's new to listening to Am I Allowed to Like Anything, it's a chance where myself and the guests can shout out a person, place, or thing that they really appreciate right now. I surprisingly have one on deck, but no pressure. You can think about it. I have to pull them up. Oh, here they are. I need to think about mine. Might be really embarrassing. <laughs> That's okay. 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 So what's on your mind? I have been listening to um, Right There by Nicole Scherzinger a lot this week. <laughs> is that a, Wait, who is that? She was the lead of the Pussycat Dolls. Remember? <laughs> Whoa. I 100% forgot about them. Wait, she put out a single? Oh, yeah, she had like a solo career after like PCD. I think I knew that. I th- yeah. I'm showing my, I'm showing my, my like Your pop age. cultural lapse right now. Yeah, this came out in 2011. So I think I was like a sophomore or something or this is still my freshman year in college. But yeah, it is a banger. Like it has 50 cent in it. And like I've been watching the video like constantly. It is so good. Oh my God, you should watch it. She like does hula dancing in it because she's like from Hawaii. And oh my God, so what? beautiful. It's great. Wait, what's the name of the song again? Uh, right there. Right there. Not the Ariana song. The Ariana Grande song sucks. Oh my gosh, but I love Ariana Grande. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. Do you so like what, Ariana Grande? I I guess I do. I don't know. She's just like all of her songs blend into one another for me. You know, I, get I loved that. her like three years ago when you know when the she way put out. yeah yeah the way yes. came out. You know, and also so what is happening with her and Mac Miller? Because like I saw him trending yesterday or two days ago, and I was what? like, are yeah. they in a relationship? Apparently, I saw some picture of them uh, smooching, as they say. Come on, so. oh, I gotta look this up right now. <laughs> I gotta look this up right now. <gasps> yeah, is it? Wait, but Mac, does this mean Mac Miller's no longer with his girl? Oh, that, my God. Is that is that Ariana Grande? Yeah. Well, that means Mac Miller's no longer with his girlfriend. Well, yeah. maybe it doesn't, but yeah. I mean, now he's not. Damn. It's pretty crazy. But anyway, that remains her best song to me. I agree. I love that song. Yeah. Okay, so my plus one is actually an Instagram follower. Uh-huh. Her name's Monica Ahanonu, and I'm really hoping that I pronou- I'm pronouncing her name correctly. But she's an artist at DreamWorks Animation, which I think is awesome. Nice. Um, but I really am loving. I mean, I'm gonna make sure I post some of this on the site. But she's Whoa. done a lot of work with color and with shape and structure that I think is really great. Um, she's got some uh, some images on here that she's done of Gabby Douglas, Simone mm. Biles beautiful things from the olympics Uh um and i'm someone who's super into structure and consistency Mm -hmm. and a lot of her pieces do this for me so i i think she's incredibly talented and i and i just really like her instagram account because it's a mix of both her work and she's also into fashion and it just doesn't feel like she's trying that hard and i appreciate that that is important yeah so anyways that's my plus one shout out shout out to monica and I'm going to make sure I get this to her. <laughs> Mayuk, thank you. Thank you, Darian. I'm so glad we finally did this. I'm so glad we finally did this. Literally 80 years, you know, <laughs> where I was just like, oh, yeah, I'll do it today, blah, blah, blah. And I just, like, flaked on you constantly. No, so thank it's you. it's okay. Oh, my God. <laughs> he did flake on me, guys. No, I'm just <laughs> I did. It's I fine. <laughs> I think that everything is supposed to happen when it's supposed to happen. So I'm glad that we finally had this conversation. It was one, one for the books. 
Yeah. I, Is that I, what they say? I don't know. Dude, oh, that's another thing I forgot to mention. Um, Bengali is my first language, not English, so. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, whenever I, like, can't, like, say sentences or anything, I'm just like, oh, English isn't my first language, <laughs> you know? I, like, I get away with it, so yeah, it's yeah, fine. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. <laughs> On that note. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mayu. Thank you, Darian.